What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition. And uh, you guys, this week is a very special episode. Uh, I got to talk to my friend, Jesse Thorne. Uh, you probably know Jesse if you know podcasting. He runs the Maximum Fun Network. Uh, he he bore that from his own brain many, many years ago. Very early entry into podcasting, uh, trailblazer in a lot of ways. And he also hosts the public radio show Bullseye which you can also find as a podcast and Jordan Jesse go with his good friend, Jordan Morris, who you might remember from the point break episode. And uh, Jesse is uh, kind of an old friend. Now we've known each other for about 10 years, uh, met through John Hodgman when John took us to a, uh, a live bullseye that he was doing in New York, took Josh and I, and uh, Jesse's just been a really kind, generous friend to me over the years in the, uh, in the podcasting industry. And it's really meant a lot to me. And I know his, uh, wonderful wife, Teresa now, and, uh, he's, he's got a great family. He's got three kids and, um, he's just a really uh, good dude. And we got to talk, um, at length, which is what I wanted. This is a supersized one, uh, at length about the industry and his background, which is really interesting and about podcasting and, about his great, great interview he recently did with David Letterman for Bullseye, which you have to listen to uh, right after you listen to this. And uh, then we got to zero in on his favorite film, a movie I'd never really heard of much outside of Jesse talking about it, called A Thousand Clowns, starring Jason Robards from 1965, uh, based on the Broadway show of the same name. And it is a great, great movie, you guys. It's, uh, I think there's a version on YouTube that you can see. Otherwise, it's DVD only. 
But uh, I highly recommend it. Really, really great movie. And this was one of the uh, best conversations I've ever had uh, on the show. And I'm very proud of it. And big thanks to Jesse for that. So he makes it easy on me. So here we go with Jesse Thorne on A Thousand Clowns. How you doing? You ready for Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah. Doing it big. By big, I mean small. <laughs> yeah, we actually have Two. one couple coming over. That's it. Ooh, a la. No family. That's, that's living it up. Yeah, we've got uh, no one coming over and my children don't eat anything. Yeah. So I had to figure out what constitutes uh, Thanksgiving dinner for two people when also you have to participate in childcare all day. <laughs> so what are y'all doing? Turkey thighs. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some green beans or something. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of doing the thing. And uh, these are our two friends who have, uh, we, I know that getting a COVID test is a bit of an effort. But mm -hmm. everyone else is like, well, unless you've quarantined for two weeks before that and then took the test, then it's worthless. But uh, we're having it outside. It's going to be 70 degrees and it'll just be the four of us plus Ruby. That's nice. Who eats nothing as well. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have uh, rice cakes with cream cheese on them, if you're wondering. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. We might mix it up. We might have rice cakes with peanut butter on them. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows, Chuck? So, my friend, uh, you and I grew up in very different uh, situations. Like, I grew up in, in on the outskirts of Atlanta in Georgia, and you grew up as a city kid in San Francisco. And I've always uh, been envious of people who get to grow up in places like that and have that kind <laughs> of uh, life. Um, I want to hear a little bit about the San Francisco you grew up in compared it's to all, this. It's everyone's dream to grow up with a, with a junkie breaking into their house. Well, let's, I want to hear about that. Like what was San Francisco like back then where you grew up? Um, I grew up in the mission district of San Francisco, which uh, now in 2020 is literally where Mark Zuckerberg lives. He, wow. He bought two houses, connected them together and built a car turntable. <laughs> That's really true. Really? He really did all of those things. The hospital I was born in, San Francisco General, is now called Mark and whatever her name is, Zuckerberg uh, General Hospital, named after he and his wife. Um, but when I was a kid, it was, um, you know, I mean, the thing about San Francisco is it's a small city mm -hmm. and everything is on top of everything else. So you walk five blocks and you're in an entirely different kind of neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't like I lived in a desolate wasteland, quite the opposite. Like, um, it was, uh, it was a really beautiful, vibrant, exciting, neighborhood to live in. Like I, I, I can't imagine being from anywhere else. I loved it then. Um, I love it in retrospect. And also, <laughs> you know, I did have to like, like, it's real that I had to like, you know, know what colors of shoes to wear. And, um, you know, I got jumped probably five or six times yeah. in my childhood, you know, like I wasn't ever going to join a gang, you know what I mean? Right. Like, and I also, you know, um, 
my family was, you know, my parents were divorced and both, both my parents until I was a teen, until I was in my mid teens were pretty broke, but like we didn't ever want for food, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, you know, there were times when it was scary, but, um, it was awesome. You know, like the, I knew the people at the corner store and I knew the guy at the newsstand and I took the bus to school by myself starting in second grade. Wow. The, just like the regular bus, you know, and I Mm -hmm. took the BART train to school and, um, you know, I walked around, I knew the people in the neighborhood. I knew the people at the thrift store. I, you know, like it was, um, it was all the great parts of living in a city. Um, and some of the tough parts, but, um, and you went to a kind yeah. of a fancy private school on scholarship though, right? Well, I, part of my, part of my school years. So I went to a not fancy private school in elementary school. Um, but at that school, it was like, um, it, it was like <laughs> the, the gifted and talented programs were in their infancy. And, uh, at that school, my gifted and talented program was first they offered to skip me two grades. Um, when I was going into first grade, they offered to put me into third grade. Really? And is this because general smarts? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I was not emotionally smart enough to do that. <laughs> and I'm glad that my parents recognized that, you know, sure. Like there's different kinds of development. Um, and, uh, so they pretty much just would like, let me hang out in the library. <laughs> So I read like every book in the library uh-huh. um, just because I was bored, you know, and um, and then I in sixth grade, I went to this middle school that was extraordinarily fancy and not like blue blazer fan- fancy, like um, tech money, um, polar tech vest, right. um, you know, Tiva sandal uh, fancy. It was a progressive school called Nueva. And um it was a very, very mixed experience where I was really excited to be surrounded by super genius kids. Uh Um, and that was really fun and cool. And I still have some really close friends from middle school actually. Um, but it was also a bunch of rich kids that I could not relate to on that. And they were all suburban kids, almost all suburban kids too. Like I took a, I took the, BART train to Daly City, which is the last stop south of San Francisco. And then there was like a van that would pick us up at the uh, city kids that would pick us up at the Daly City BART station. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, like, (laughs) you know, I mean, I could tell you a, a thousand weird, awkward stories about middle school, like you know, one year for my birthday, a kid felt bad that I didn't have any video game systems. So he gave me his used Atari links for my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one time I remember my friend Cam, who's a really sweet guy, still is a a sweet guy. We're Facebook friends. Um, He came to visit me at my house and um, we were walking to get ice cream at Mitchell's Ice Cream in San Francisco, best Mm -hmm. ice cream in the world. And, um, we were walking down, um, we were walking down San Jose Avenue and this is a very quiet, I mean, it's a wide street, but a quiet residential neighborhood and a pretty chill middle-class street. And he was so scared 
And I wasn't mad that he was scared. I was mad that he was scared on the wrong street. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I was like, like scared. <laughs> dude, if we were walking down South Van Ness, sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> like if we were, you know, whatever, whatever the, like, um, and I just, when I would go visit their houses in, in like, the school was in this town called Hillsboro in the peninsula in San Francisco. And, you know, like literally, you know, one of this kid's parents was, the founder of Genentech and, you know, one of the kids' parents was Robin Williams. Oh, wow. (laughs) And like, you know, like stuff like that, you know, and it was so foreign to, most of them were like lawyers or whatever, but they had giant suburban houses. Yeah. It was so foreign to me and I hated it. I hated that part of it. And I hated being expected to achieve as well. Cause I, in middle school, I, I have migraine headaches and I started getting migraines when I was in fifth grade. Oh man. And they were really debilitating at that time. And because the medication that I take now didn't exist then. Um, And so, you know, between being a, you know, between being a whatever, like a super highly gifted kid who didn't ever do homework or like couldn't, you know, had other developmental issues. And the fact that I missed in, in middle school, I missed like 15% of my school days because of migraines. Oh man. Um, you know, was a really, that was a really tough experience. But then I, I did, I did not graduate from middle school. <laughs> I was socially promoted from middle school. And, um, uh, I, so for that reason, I was, could know, I like to be a white kid that is the scholarship kid at a fancy private school, you have to be a perfect candidate. Like, right. I was poor. I was still poor enough and still smart enough, mm-hmm. uh, to go to a fancy private school on, on scholarship. But unfortunately I, my grades were not good anymore. So, um, was that because I didn't or just didn't uh, care as much about I, trying? I, I hated homework and I missed a lot of time because of migraines. So it was both of those things. Yeah. I didn't mind. I went to class. I learned this stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I just hated doing homework. I thought it was stupid because it is. Um, (laughs) I wasn't wrong. Um, and so I actually, like, there was two plans. (laughs) One was, because I wasn't getting into any of the fancy private schools, you know, Lick Wilmerding is one of the big ones. And, uh, I wasn't getting into any of those. So the plans were, and my, and my neighborhood school, you know, was a, was a, you know, I like, I don't want to overstate it, but it was a war zone. And being a a fay white boy was not going to work yeah. at Mission High. So um, the choices were I auditioned for School of the Arts. And if I got in, I was going to go to School of the Arts. And if I didn't get in, I was going to take the high school proficiency exam and just hang out for four years until it was time to go to college. Wow. So that was your, that was your, <laughs> yeah, like two maybe paths? Get, get a job or something, you know, I don't yeah. know, take classes at city college, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, hang around, whatever. Um, and I got into school of the arts and, uh, school of the arts was, um, that was an amazing experience. I loved, I loved soda. Um, I was in theater and, uh, I'm not a good actor and was not a good actor then, but I was, think I was just a, you know, I was a boy and I could do a cold reading. Yeah. And I was willing to audition for theater school at 13, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, my, my classmates were all brilliantly talented. 
Some of them are famous now, right? Performers. Yeah, well, at least semi-famous. Uh, one of my classmates won a won a Tony for um, being in uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch on oh, Broadway. Cool. Uh-huh. Um, one of my classmates is uh, she was one of the stars of You're the Worst yes. on FX, That's and she's right. she's on um, she's on name? the Boys now on Amazon Prime. Oh, she, I, I haven't cash. seen the new season. Yeah, she's great. I, I really yeah, like that so, show. Yeah, she's really, she's really great. And, um, you know, like I was, it's not even like I would have picked her. It wasn't like she was always destined for fame. Yeah. Like she was one of many really talented and, and the kids that I went to school with, like many of the ones who are not professional actors or whatever are still doing those kinds of things in life. You know, people are, people are theater teachers and, you know, people are, different kinds of community organizers and you know like it was a very inspirational place now academically it was nothing but unlike (laughs) like the arts education was really world-class and then the school part the school school part was nothing but um no one cared yeah so that was fine i was like well here if i don't do any homework i can still have an a minus average (laughs) Right. You know, yeah. like counting APs or whatever. Like at one point, at one point, my calculus teacher was like, Jesse, I'm going to have to give you an F because you have not done any homework all year. But there was only six people in the calculus class because <laughs> it was, a, you know, it's an art school. There's yeah. not that many people. And he's like, and he's like, but I want there to be calculus next year. <laughs> so, <laughs> and if I fail everybody, there won't be calculus. So he's like, so he goes, if you pass the AP exam, I'll, I'll give you a C. <laughs> I'm like, cool, done. I passed the AP exam. <laughs> so you feel like if you, all you had to do was apply yourself and you could do okay. It just wasn't that interesting to you. Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, I worked hard in theater. Right. And I went to class, you know, to the extent I was able, my migraines were still a big problem, but, um, uh, I went to class. I wasn't like skipping class or, you know, it's funny. Like, I was an, at an arts high school and I was not doing drugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've always been a clean liver, so you weren't, you weren't getting drunk at parties and smoking weed behind the dumpster. No, I mean, my friends were doing those things sure. and I supported them in it. You know, I yeah. wasn't opposed to it. <laughs> no, that was but, me too. Cause I grew up a church kid. So I didn't, I didn't get involved in alcohol or pot or anything until I was, you know, well into college. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, in arts high school, it was much more interesting to, uh, to, I mean, there was every, there was no pressure to be any kind of person. Yeah. That's cool. At at my high school, there was a girl who wore PVC to class. (laughs) How do you do that? (laughs) Like vinyl clothing, you know, like, and, and giant platform boots, like six inch platform boots. Yeah. All black. Um, you know, there was, Every, every, any kind of subculture was represented, but not like, um, not in a doctrinaire way. Like, it's not like there was like metal heads and right. it was every kind of thing. And there was like dancing in the hallways all the time. Uh-huh. Um, it's like the fame school. <laughs> it was, I mean, that's, is what type of school it was. You yeah. know, everybody was there cause they wanted to be there. You had to audition to go there. Um, and most of the arts programs were like world-class, not all of them. Some, some of them had bad teachers and, uh, you know, like lots of, lots of my classmates went to Juilliard yeah. and went to Rhode Island school of design and, 
so on and so forth. And then the ones who didn't just went to city college, <laughs> right. you know, like it just was not, <laughs> it was not an academically oriented institution. What was your, uh, what were you into movie wise as a kid? Um, I always love to dip, kind of dig into the early, um, early movie going experiences of, of the guests. I mean, as a kid, kid, uh, well, my dad really loved movies and, um, my mom did not distinguish between children and adults. So, <laughs> um, uh, and you know, like my mom, when I was a kid went to graduate school, um, and became, uh, when I was in my late teens, she became a junior college professor in humanities. So she's very serious about culture. Um, though she has weird tastes and my dad like loves, loved movies, um, just more than anything. And, um, and, and my dad, like, my dad was the kind of guy who could like, he would like come home from seeing, uh, from seeing like the fourth Shrek movie with my little brothers and tell me about how great it was. Yeah. And then he would tell me about how he saw every Bergman film, uh, in repertory over the course of a month. Yeah. You know, like he just loved going to the movies. Like he understood what was great about great movies and did not care about what was bad about bad movies. That's the best. Like kind he of just movie liked fan. going to the movies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my mom, we would go a lot to, there was a movie theater right by my mom's house uh, that's still there called The Roxy on 16th Street in San Francisco. One screen, super dirty, yeah, uh, super junky. It's now, I think, a nonprofit, um, but like a rep, rep theater mm -hmm. that showed weird art movies. Um, and we went there all the time and I saw all kinds of stuff, like every kind of stuff. And then, I mean, that's like also where I saw Star Wars. I think it got rewritten, the, the all three of them got re-released maybe in 87 when uh -huh. I was six. I saw all three of them there with my mom. And um, so just went to all kinds of movies. And then when I was in high school, I was actually in a program that was connected to my school, but not a school program called uh, Art and Film for High School Students, which also still exists. And I, I send them some money because of the effect they had on my life. But yeah. every Saturday, me and my art nerd friends would go to a movie and then like go to some galleries or a museum. And, uh, the movie was usually paid for. Um, and you know, we'd go see <laughs> the movie. <laughs> There's like a, it's like a movie. Gosh, I can't think of what it was called, but it was, it was where, um, Leonardo DiCaprio is, is like, he's either Oscar Wilde or Oscar Wilde's boyfriend. And there's just a really hot gay sex scene. And uh, anyway, like we go see those movies. Yeah. And they, and also like I'm born in 81. So when I was 17 and 18, 16, 17, 18 mm -hmm. in the late 90s was, you know, one of the golden ages of American cinema, you know? like Yeah, it really is. I got to see everything from the kind of like great middle brow, mm -hmm. you know, your Shakespeare in loves. Right. Uh, um, to, uh, you know, the, the, the best 
Coen Brothers movies right. to the to best the Steven Soderbergh movies <laughs> yeah. to, yeah, like all, all of those amazing films. And then they would also, they had access to this, these two theaters, um, one at Dolby headquarters and, uh, which is in San Francisco and one at this museum called the Randall museum. And they would show old movies. So I got to see like the passion of Joan of Arc and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Berlin Alexander plots and oh, wow. like, <laughs> those kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And like, I didn't love every single one of them to be clear, but, yeah. um, uh, but I loved getting to see all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was really, um, all kinds of everything. And, um, you know, it ties into this movie we're going to talk about today because I realized at some point in my twenties, my early twenties, I was like, well, my favorite childhood movie is Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And it always was. And my favorite, um, like adolescent movie was Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite adult movie is A Thousand Clowns. And I'm like, what do these all have in common? <laughs> oh no, they're all about child men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man children is the theme of my film passion. Uh-oh. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> um, uh, you oh. eventually... I was like, I also like the limey a lot. I also like the limey a lot. <laughs> oh, I love the limey. God, what a great movie. Yeah, that movie has movies. one of the best lines uh, ever in movies, which is, uh, the scene where Terrence Stamp goes into Bill Duke's office and has that long sort of cockney uh, diatribe and Duke says, there's just one thing I don't understand. Every motherfucking word that just came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking my favorite line from that movie is, um, is Terrence Stamp and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Luis Guzman oh, yeah. are at Peter Fonda's mansion. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> standing standing out on the infinity the edge of the infinity uh-huh. pool and uh terrence stamp in his terrence stamp voice says like beautiful view in it yeah and and luis guzman says yeah you could see the ocean if you could see it yeah i knew it dude that's one of my favorites such a good movie and so yeah. under like criminally underseen i think too um so you eventually wound up at uh, uc santa cruz where you're broadcasting career kind of got started in earnest. Uh, and I'd love to know a little bit about those years. And when you first um, started, you know, DJing for the radio station there and kind of how that, uh, what led you to that? And then if that was definitely like the kernel where you're like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, I, what I knew was that I wanted to, that like I I never thought I would have a regular job. I mean, yeah. unless it was a regular job that um that where I was moonlighting doing something I really wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. I think that was very possible. But I I never was like I'm going to become a lawyer or like it was always just like I'll just be a secretary or something right. until something works. Um and uh I knew that I was not good enough at acting to be a professional actor. Now. Now that I'm a, an adult man, <laughs> so like when you go to theater school, they're really into theater and they act like to be a professional actor, you have to be super good at acting. Right. It turns out you just have to look like a thing. Yeah, that's kind of true. If I like, if someone had explained that to me, maybe I would have become pursued an acting career. You look like I thing. did book a, yeah, because <laughs> I did book a couple of a local commercials when I was just out of college uh-huh. and, um, you know, like. 
I got, I go, Scott Ackerman put me on his TV show as like, you know, insufferable, uh, insufferable pinhead yeah, yeah. comedy writer, you know, like <laughs> I could have just been there. I could have just worn this Shetland sweater that I'm wearing right now <laughs> and played insufferable pinhead. Um, but I, I was, I, I knew like how much more talented and how much, and you know, in theater school, like all they tell you is like, if this isn't everything you want in the world, don't do it. Yeah. You know, they're constantly trying to scare you off. Sure. And so I was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to be a, an actor actor. And I was doing improv um, uh, as starting my freshman year of college. And um, I had two friends who were really, really funny. Um, they were named Gene and Jordan. And Gene was my friend from freshman year. And he was in, on my improv team. And Gene, I just had never met somebody so funny. And... Like I had funny friends in high school and middle school, but um, I think I just had never met somebody who was my peer who was definitely funnier than me. Uh-huh. Like where I was like, oh, I cannot compete with this. This person is more talented than I am. No right. doubt about it in this specific area of being funny. Yeah. Um, and because uh, like I'm like funny for a normal person, but not compared to my friends who are professional comedians. Um, and so my friend Gene was the first person I met like that. He was so funny. And he, I remember he was in, we shared, we were in the first, we were in the, there was this core class, you know, like a common class for people at our college. Mm-hmm. And we were in that class together. You take it your first, your first quarter of your freshman year. And um, he later told me, <laughs> He later told me that he thought I was always high or drunk. (laughs) (laughs) That's ironic. (laughs) Took until like he knew he had known me for like five months before he realized that I was just like this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he was so, so, so funny and um, a little bit of a reluctant performer, uh, you know, was a little ambivalent about doing improv, but so, so talented. And then my second year uh, to pay for college, I was an, I was an RA and I was the RA of a performing arts hall. And on my hall was my friend Jordan and Jordan was so funny. Like I was mad at him. He was so funny. Uh And this is Jordan Morris for listeners. uh, Yeah. This is Jordan Morris, who is now my co-host on Jordan, Jesse go. Yeah. And And, former movie crush uh, guest. Exactly. And, uh, (laughs) and uh, awesome. And I was like, this guy is so funny. I can't even believe it. And so I just kind of roped them. He, Jordan came onto our improv team and I just kind of roped them into a college radio show. And the, really the reason I chose a college radio show was not because I had always dreamed of becoming a radio host. It was just because it was like three years before you could afford to buy a camera if you were a normal person. Yeah. Yeah. And there was no TV station on campus. Right. So it was either that or we write for the 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 semi humorous campus newspaper the fish rap live so <laughs> while we had very little shame we had enough shame to not do that we didn't have enough shame to not be in a short form improv group but uh we had enough shame to not write for the fish rap live so uh so yeah we i like i i very vividly remember taking a tour of the college radio station thinking this must be so complicated and then seeing somebody using the board mm-hmm. and being like oh so it's just up is louder and down is quieter <laughs> <laughs> with like i can do that yeah you know 
And uh, I started a radio show. And that radio show, which was then called The Sound of Young America. I love that name, by the way. Uh, you're, you're one of a very small group. I don't get um, it. I know why you changed it, I guess. But I just, I really, really thought that was a great name. I just got sick of getting emails from people who said, so you think you're the sound of young America, huh? Really? You must oh, be 47 God. years old. And I'd be like, well, actually I'm not <laughs> just talk that way. And also the title was intended to be ironic, but anyway, um, that show is my, still my show. Like that's, that's bullseye. My yeah. NPR show is that show. Um, eventually Jordan and Jean, uh, graduated. And when they graduated, we, we used to do more comedy on the show. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't want to be, you know, Harry Shearer on the show, like mm -hmm. telling jokes to myself right. uh, in a lonely room, like doing, doing solo humor on radio is very, very hard. Yeah. As the quality of the show attests. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I just moved to all, I, I had like guest co-hosts for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, including among others, some friends from San Francisco comedy, then uh, W. Kamau Bell, who just oh, won wow. three Emmys for his show on CNN. Yeah, I didn't know you guys went um, back that far. Yeah. Al, Al Madrigal, who, uh, sure. who's on correspondent on the daily show, among other things. And, um, uh, my friends from this sketch comedy group called Casper Hauser from San Francisco, who yeah, are the greatest, greatest comedy geniuses I've ever known. Um, so I had some, had some co-hosts and then started doing it solo. When I started doing it solo, I went to all interviews. Um, but, but you were a public radio kid, right? Like you, you know, I've oh, heard you sure. tell stories about listening to public radio when you were in your teens. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's be frank. I know that you work for iHeartMedia and I don't want to be too unkind, but commercial radio blows and it pretty much always has. Like yeah. the reason, you know, the reason Howard Stern is a radio phenomenon is because he's like one of like two people that don't totally suck, you know, <laughs> like yeah. commercial radio is the worst. Um, and you know, like DJs do their DJ thing. Like I'm not saying that DJs are, are bad, but like right. talk radio is a, is a, is a real cesspool. Yeah. Um, and no one was doing comedy. I mean, like every comedy on the radio in, you know, 1997 or 2003 was just, you know, embarrassing clowns. Yeah. Um, you know, with a very few exceptions, but even those people were trapped in, you know, like Howard Stern before he was on satellite was kind of, was trapped in doing modern rock morning show, like playing, yeah. having to play records and stuff for forever, despite yeah. being, you know, one of the most talented broadcasters of his generation. And his thing is not even, you know, it's not even a thing that's for me, but like, I'm, I can see it. And, you know, and then other talented people were like, you know, Rush Limbaugh is really talented. Rush Limbaugh is a really talented radio host, but right. you know, that's a very specific lane that I was not going to go into. Sure. So, um, so yeah, public radio was where it was at. And like all the things that people say about public radio are, are mostly true, except for the liberal bias thing. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, but, uh, all the, uh, all the things that people say about pretense or whatever, uh -huh. you know, like, yeah, people are trying to make smart things that is pretentious. Right. Um, you know, they do talk more slowly, uh -huh. <laughs> whatever, 
Um, but there was no question that that was the only place that I was going to find. <laughs> like before podcasting, if I was going to be a broadcaster, there was no way that I was going to be successful hosting a sports talk show. Right. You know, like I listen to sports talk sometimes. Yeah. Um, but like there was no way that I was going to be JT the brick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll pour him another brew. You know, like I was, that was never going to be my thing, you know? Yeah. Although you do love a good t-shirt cannon. Oh God, do I love a t-shirt cannon. <laughs> for a while, Jordan was hosting, Jordan worked for a long time for an action sports TV network that doesn't exist anymore called Fuel. And sometimes he would have to host things at the Dew Tour on the on the fuel oh, stage at the Lord. do tour yeah and he uh he is uh you know he's not totally unfamiliar with action sports stuff he's not like a skateboarder but he's from orange county yeah but like uh he and our friend chris fairbanks is another very brilliant stand-up comic oh yeah chris is great but like his whole his whole chris's whole act is just him mumbling and saying words wrong yeah. so he's not exactly a commanding presence to a bunch of 15 year olds you know that are right. about to throw their skateboards at you and i remember jordan telling me just how grateful he was for the t-shirt cannon uh -huh. <laughs> just like no matter what happens you can always just shoot t-shirts into the ground i feel like jordan is very pliable though um i feel like there aren't many situations that you could throw him into where he would fail. Uh, he's a pretty adaptable guy with his, with his funnies, I think. Oh, absolutely. No, he's so funny. I mean, he's so brilliantly funny and he's also always been immensely socially flexible. Yeah. I mean, I think that comes for him from, from, you know, he went to a really regular high school in Orange County mm -hmm. and he also had some of that like, you know, Orange County is is not monolithic in terms of class. Um, there are plenty of lower middle class and poorer folks in, in Orange County. But, you know, Jordan grew up with a single mom and um, in less than affluent circumstances. And, you know, a lot of folks around him were really rich. Um, and I think between those things, he like really, uh, he's always been very, so, I mean, he can deal with me, you know what I mean? Like, I'm a pretty acquired <laughs> taste. <laughs> <laughs> a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, uh, you went on to found Max Fun, uh, Maximum Fun, and I remember when we first met, it was at the Green Space in New York City. Uh, you were doing a, uh, which is for those of you listening that don't know it, it's a, it's kind of one of these cool performance uh, recording spaces where people can walk by on the street and see what's going on inside, and it's pretty small, uh, probably <laughs> like less than in the 100. Boston one. There's one at the station in Boston, and uh, while we were doing Jordan Jessica, literally a guy in a Tom Brady jersey uh-huh. uh, walked up to the big picture window where only the performers on stage can see you uh-huh. you know like all the all the audience's back is to him yeah he walks up to the big picture window he looks at us in his tom brady jersey and then just flips us the double, double bird. birds no way oh my god <laughs> you're like thanks boston thanks you do you boston that's about right <laughs> uh but i remember uh hodgman took josh and i and we met you and you were doing it may have been Sound of Young America Live or, or just some yeah. sort of variety I show it type probably thing. probably was, yeah. And you had the guy from La Savvy Fav and uh, a couple of other great guests. Oh, yeah. And um, we met after, and I remember you told me, and this is the first I'd kind of known of you and of Maximum Fun, and when you were telling me about it and sort of the brief time we had to chat afterward, it, what really spoke to me was this idea of um, sort of the ethos of rejecting cynicism and embracing earnestness. And that really, like, from that moment on, I was Team Jesse all the way. And I kind of want to know a little bit more about that back then and what you think about that now. Well, I think that, um, so in college, we invented this thing that my friend Rebecca Worth named uh, the New Sincerity. She named it that because one day at one day at lunch in the dining hall, 
you know, I was there with probably with Jean and Jordan. And she said, she's very sweet. She became a school teacher, but very brilliant woman as well. She goes, Jesse, I'm always uncomfortable eating lunch with your friends. And I'm like, oh no, Rebecca, like, why, why is that? And she's like, I cannot tell if you are joking. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's a fine line. <laughs> yeah. I think what, what happened is like, I'm a, I'm an elder millennial, right? I was born in 1981. I'm kind of on the, on the line, just on in the an old millennial. Soul. Yeah. And, um, but I grew up sort of in the shadow of the pop culture of Generation X, right? Yeah. And Generation X was all about cynically rejecting the trappings of baby boomerdom, quite reasonably, yeah. you know? Um, and it was also about, you know, engaging with irony and camp in ways that, you know, previous generations had not been able to, yeah, you know, like hippies, hippies were, were not engaged with camp. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but Diva was, right. uh, <laughs> and you know, and Ben Stiller or whatever was engaged with irony. Right. And, um, and like, I always thought that was, I mean, camp has its place certainly, but like that sort of like reserved, removed, ironic stance feels like such a cop out to me. And it always did. Um, and I also was just like, I don't want to just talk about what character on Scooby-Doo you'd want to fuck right. or whatever, <laughs> you know, like I get it, you know, like yeah. it's not that it, I would never want to talk about that, but just, just, I wouldn't want that to be the center of my world. But at the, but at the same time, like the alternative to that at the time was like the Hallmark channel type stuff, you yeah. know? Right. And like, I was like, but I do, I do love to laugh. Like, and I do love art, you know? Yeah. Both high and low. Um, and I don't just want to live in a world of, you know, uh, the big, uh, uh, <laughs> what's that, uh, what's the movie where, um, all the baby boomers get together in their thirties and they big listen chill. to Motown songs. Yeah. yeah. Big chill. Not the big sleep. That's like a Raymond Chandler book. Which, by the way, Janie had had Tompkins. That was her uh, movie crush pick. Was the big Jill? Good for her. Janie's the best. Yeah. Uh, you can't. You can't set up beef between me and Janie had Tompkins. <laughs> oh, She's of the greatest. Not. <laughs> um, uh, nice try. I know you're the. I know you're the drama king. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was like, what is the world where? What is the world where we can get past those two? opposing forces yeah and for us and it, this was all a goof like i don't want people to think like like it's part of the new sincerity is to enjoy the fact that it's ridiculous okay to embrace the fact that there's a, a ridiculousness to it and so the new sincerity for us was just like stuff that is too big to be taken directly literally but that isn't being taken ironically in the sense that you're taking it in the opposite way in which it's intended. Right. And, you know, interestingly, I think like late baby boomers or in between baby boomers and, um, and Gen Xers, maybe the best at this, like the perfect example is like parliament. 
mm-hmm. not not the not parliament uh, that runs a parliamentary democracy, but the right. banned parliament, yeah. right? Like, like the guy in the diaper is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but also an actual genius, mm-hmm. and also there's a reason he's wearing the diaper. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, Dolly Parton is a an intentional self caricature. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Dolly Parton created a cartoon of herself, mm-hmm. but it's not that it's an insincere cartoon. It's genuinely reflective of who she is. And she's a genuine genius. Yeah. She's a genuine art genius who makes genuinely amazing work. Yeah. Right. And so that is kind of the spirit of this thing. And a lot of, you know, in comedy wise, you know, um, I mean, obviously Pee Wee Herman is a big one, um, that it was really life-changing for me. Um, but like, you know, I think the, speaking of how it's not from Gen X, I think the, the guys and lady from the state, Mm -hmm. um, especially in their post state work, you know, Wet Hot American Summer and Stella and, Like, I think those are really reflective of it. Like this kind of like ridiculousness that is really pointed. Um, And uh, yeah, so we kind of made up this thing as a goof. And then like part of what's fun about it is the more importance you put into it, the more it becomes itself. You know what I mean? Right, (laughs) yeah. Because that is sort of the premise. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I mean, it's like... And then, you know, as a, as a man, you know, as a, like an adult adult, not a 22 year old or a 20 year old. Right. Um, I think just we've worked really hard to make real comedy that is, that like takes care of people to some extent. Yeah. You know, and that's not like, it's like, we don't just want to be, you know, late period Bob Hope or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) But, um, you know, we're not trying to be Jay Leno, you know? Jay Jay Leno is not without merit, to be clear. But, like, but we, it's not just can we make comfort food. Like, you can challenge people and do something that at least aspires to being artful um, without being an asshole yeah um and that's what it's kind of turned into eventually like i'm too old now to do anything actually ridiculous you know <laughs> but like one time we did buy <laughs> me and jordan did buy a thousand people ice cream <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it was great what did you launch uh, aside from sound of young america what did you launch max fun with what were the first few shows the original shows were um you know, it was like, what could I do? It was just me and mm-hmm. I had a job. So like a job not doing Max Fun. So it was... What was The that? Sound of Young... It was... I worked at, at a... I was a receptionist at a nonprofit. Okay. Um, so the original launch was like, I moved to LA with my wife so she could go to law school. And the guys from Casper Hauser paid me a little bit of money for a few months to make a podcast of some of their sketches and they were, cause they had their first book was out called sky mall, happy crap. You can buy from a plane, <laughs> um, which is one of the most brilliant works of comedy ever. One of the only 
one of the only books ever to be blurred by comedy, comedy writing's two greatest Daves, uh, Dave Barry and David Foster Wallace. Um, and, uh, they paid me to do some sketches. And then I had befriended this man named Mal Sharp, who in the sixties with a guy named Jim Coyle did these put-ons for a radio station in San Francisco, these elaborate on man on the street interviews Mm -hmm. where they would try to get someone to rent out. Like they interviewed a woman to see if she would be willing to rent other people's children (laughs) (laughs) because she was childless or like, you know, uh, they they did this interview with this guy who was in, in the Navy and they tried to convince him to go to his base, get a bunch of guns, bring them back, and then they would all rob a bank together. And it was a real bank, but they were making a movie. And then one guy, and the guy agreed to it. And when they told him it was a put on, he still wanted to do it. <laughs> and then, or like there was one where they try and convince somebody to do this thing where he grows... Uh, <laughs> He grows ashtrays in his head and then they're surgically removed and it's like a way to make money, (laughs) like extra money. Um, So they would do these insane things. And this is like the sixties before it was the six, this is like 1962. This is not, this is not hippie sixties. This is, you know, they were like cool guys. They were probably kind of beatniks, you know, they were North beach guys, but like this was, they they said they would look for the people in the heaviest long wing shoes. Right. <laughs> and um he had this big archive of their stuff. And he had been a guest on my show. And I knew that he and his daughter had digitized all this stuff. It was on CDs, you know. And uh, I just said, Hey, could I make a podcast of it? So it was um it was Coil and Sharp, Casper Hauser. And the sound of young America. Wow. And then not long after I moved to LA, I, I started Jordan Jesse go with Jordan because uh-huh. Jor- Jordan had been doing the sound of young America with, with our friend Gene and me. Um, but he moved to LA to work in show business. So he was, he was PAing on a show called living with Fran uh-huh. created by, uh, it was a Fran Drescher sitcom yeah. based on the life of Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, if you're wondering whether it was 2008. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, when, and the first show we added to the network that I wasn't making was Stop Podcasting Yourself, which is still around. Yeah. And still Love one of my guys. favorite podcasts. Graham I was just Dave. listening to it this morning. Were, where did you hear the word podcast for the first time? I had a family friend who was the kind of guy who read Wired Magazine in the early to mid 90s. Uh-huh. You know, a real Mark Frauenfelder from Boing Boing type right. guy. <laughs> and um, he just emailed me in 2004. I was just out of college. And he said, um, hey, I know you do that radio show. And I was fully like just dry, borrowing my mom's car to drive to Santa Cruz to do my college radio show after having graduated from college. That's mm-hmm. where I was at. I thought about quitting. And my, my now wife, then girlfriend said to me, she literally said to me, I said, should I stop doing the radio show? Like, this is ridiculous. I don't even have the money for the gas, you know? Yeah. And uh, she said, well, you don't do anything else. <laughs> so I kept doing it. Teresa's um, so, very wise. So this family friend said, there's this thing called podcasting. You should look into it. So at first I couldn't do it because I didn't know how to code an RSS feed. Wow. But then someone made a thing 
where you would FTP it into a folder. You mm-hmm. would drop this little program into a folder. And then every time you dropped a new MP3 file into that folder via FTP, mm-hmm. it would add it to your RSS feed. And this was before Crazy. there was podcasts in iTunes. This yeah. was, there was this one app called iPodder. And, uh, and you were truly one of the first. Yeah. I mean, like uh, one of the first, you know, 500, certainly one of the first 300, well, certainly which is, one of the first yeah, one of the doing first. an actual thing. One <laughs> yeah. of the first 25 doing a real show. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, it's interesting because we've had a lot of conversations over the years. You know, we couldn't have uh, come at this uh, job in more different ways. And, you know, you've always owned your own stuff and you started your own um, network and it's always been independently supported. And I, you know, was a writer for the web and was assigned to do this for work and kind of fell into a, a weird success that way. And I, it's funny, like over the years, I feel like every time we've talked about each other's situation, like I'm kind of like, oh man, Jesse, that's so cool. Like you get to own your own shit. You get to run your own deal and you're an indie. And you're like, man, you just get to talk into a microphone and. <laughs> you've got other people that do everything for you and that's it. And you get to go home and go to bed every night and not stress about it. And I feel like we've always kind of envied each other's situation in weird ways. Uh, yeah. Here and I mean, there. for me, like, it's funny. Like I come from family circumstances where there was, you know, my mom, like I said, went to graduate school when I was a kid and um, became a college teacher. You know, she became an intellectual in her mid forties. Um, and my dad was an organizer. He was a, he was, uh, very central in the veterans peace movement. And, um, when I was a kid, he worked in, uh, the independent living movement. His, his best friend was a a guy named Ed Roberts, who basically invented rights for people with disabilities um, in the United States. Um, and, uh, So there was never any expectation that I would do something other than what I believed in. Right. Um, And that is different from a lot of people who go into the arts. I know because I interview artists on Bullseye, you know, like a lot of people have to fight their way to being an artist. Right. That was just the expectation for me. Um, You know, my my mom was always disappointed that I didn't do drugs. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, but like, uh, I also, and, and with that, I never expected to even be middle-class. Like I truly, for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I made $16,000 a year and lived off that. And I just thought that was what my life would be forever. Cause yeah. that's what my life had been when I was a kid, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, I think being a business person, I've always been an idealist because that's just how I was raised. And I always work so hard to make, I've always felt kind of weird and guilty about being a business person. Yeah. And, um, at the same time, like I always felt strongly, like if this happens to succeed, I would love to be the one making money from it. Yeah. So I didn't want to be, have a nonprofit cause I right, knew right. what that was. Cause my dad had worked in nonprofits his whole life, you know? And, um, and I thought, and I, you know, the, one of the, there's two hardest parts for me of being a business person. One is that I'm not a great manager. Um, 
of other people because I'm the kind of person who just wants to go sit in a corner and do, handle his own business mm -hmm. and then have everyone else handle their own business and you never have to talk to each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and then the other thing is like, you know, capitalism requires access to capital, which I never had. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things about having wealth, which I have had which i had zero of you know less than zero i had the expectation that i would have to support my parents um and possibly my siblings and 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 um but like one of the things about not having wealth you know and wealth even including like not wealth could be your parents own their own home you know mm -hmm. is capitalism is about risk right yeah and in order to make money, you have to take a risk. So you have to have access to capital to risk. And then you also have to be able to withstand the consequences of failure in that risk, right? Yeah. Like well, when those business people say the secret to business is failure, well, you get to fail if you have access to capital again after you fail. Yeah. Failing with other people's money is, is a whole different thing. <laughs> Yeah. And I didn't know anyone that had m money to invest in things. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't, it never would have occurred to me in a million billion years to ask someone to invest in what I was doing. Right. And so, you know, there's two, multiple results of that for our business. One is, you know, we probably could have tried to expand aggressively at the dawn of podcasting or the second dawn of podcasting or the third dawn of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. I, you know, I would have, I would have had a company I could sell for $50 million, like my, my friend Jeff Ulrich did with Earwolf. Yeah. But, and I'm constantly live in terror that like something will go wrong with the company and then I will have nothing and no skills, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Won't be even be able to get a job. Um, but uh, also, the, we have a relatively stable business and, you know, me and the other hosts and creators own their own stuff and so on and so forth yeah, because amazing. of the way we did it, you know, and kind of like, a unicorn these days. Yeah. And it did kind of work. Like I don't, you know, certainly if, you know, if I had created my NPR show for NPR, mm -hmm. a lot more people would listen to it. Yeah. Um, because NPR would be inve much more invested in helping me make it successful. Um, Interesting. You know, if I was like, and this is not an insult to any of these people who are my friends, who I like and admire, my my valued colleagues. But, you know, right. if I was Guy Raz of NPR, like he created a show for NPR and he got famous from it. And, yeah. you know, um, and I'm not famous. None of my shows are s s particularly successful. <laughs> You know, um, so depends but, on how you on, define that. Like you're yeah. the best interviewer of your generation. That's very kind of you to say. Um, but you know, like, uh, but I do like. I nobody can tell me what to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, nobody can cancel my shows. Like I've been doing this show for twenty years because yeah. no one can cancel it, and also because I'm scared to stop doing it because then I would have to think of a new idea. Well, recently, uh, you know, before we move on to a thousand clowns, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, 
you've had a, 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 some great opportunities to interview a lot of amazing people like Bill Withers and, you know, some true heroes of yours. But recently you got to sit down uh, with David Letterman and I listened to it the day it dropped and uh, had a lot of feelings about it. it um, immense pride for my friend and excitement for you because it was evident you held it together, but it was evident on what he means to you. And he's someone who has meant so much to me as the first sort of comedy hero of mine growing up as well. Uh, my brother and I sitting in the basement when I was, you know, 12 years old watching Letterman. And it was just an astounding interview. It was a great conversation. I feel like you guys connected uh, in a way that I don't often hear in an interview. And it was just a joy to listen to. And I would love to hear your perspective on that experience. I mean, he was certainly the person, like I said, I've been doing this show 20 years and many of the people who are on the top of my list, uh, when you say like, who would you love to have on the show? Most of all, yeah, I've had on the show, you know, Bill Withers was one of those, Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman was of course. one because of those. Pals now, so, sort of. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, well, I can't say, but, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're lovers, <laughs> uh, but I don't kiss and tell. Right. Um, uh, we, so I had a lot of those people on, but there's no question that David Letterman was always number one. Yeah. Mike Lee is another one. I, Mike Lee's movies are my favorite movies. And, oh, wow. and he came on, but, um, you know, uh, I, I just never thought it would really happen. Because when he was hosting a daily show, he just doesn't do, he just didn't do press, you yeah. know, like he would do one thing a year right? because he was obliged to, but it's an all-consuming job, you know? Right. And um, apparently uh, one of the producers of his show on Netflix, my next guest needs no introduction, is a fan of Bullseye, my NPR show. And, oh. um, and just, we, we would put in a request. I mean, you know, you put in a request and then nothing happens. We've been right. doing that for 20 years. And uh, this time that person, that guy saw it and was like, oh, this is a good show. We should have Dave do this. Wow. Um, and, you know, we managed to keep it secret from him that no one listens to it. Was that, e and, what was that email like? <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it went to, uh, it, that email went to my, uh, producer, Kevin, but I just, I just didn't believe it was real until I was sitting there with David Letterman. I mean, did you zoom? Did like, you see his face? Can't, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus. How did you I hold it like, together? <laughs> I didn't. And I was crazy. Um, and, um, it was weird it, because on the one hand, this is my greatest guest I've always wanted to have on my show forever. Yeah. And my greatest broadcasting hero, without a doubt. No offense to my, you know, to Terry Gross or Ira Glass or former San Francisco Giants play-by-play -play man, Hank Greenwald. <laughs> but Letterman's number one. Yeah. He's, he's he occupies the first, the first position on Mount Rushmore. And, um, but, you know, I mean, like a lot of people, my life has been, you know, a nightmare the last six months or nine months and um, you know, better than some, but worse than many. And, yeah. and one of the results of that has been that I have had very, very little control over my work life because of my time has been dedicated to keeping my family safe. 
And, um, and so <laughs> I had like an hour before the interview to prep for it. Like really, obviously I, I, when I, when I found out it was going to happen, uh, you know, six days before, uh-huh. like certainly it was on my mind. Like yeah, it yeah. wasn't like I wasn't cooking dinner and thinking about it, but like in terms of actual prep time, I had like an hour. And so was that better? No. Okay. Because <laughs> I didn't know if you're like looking back, it was probably better that way. No, I mean, it has its merits, right? Like I did this show about interviewing called the turnaround where I interviewed fantastic famous interviewers. Yeah. And one of the, and I, in order to do that show that I was making no money from and fit it into my 75 other jobs was just like, I was just like, I'm not prepping for any of these interviews. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I know who these people are and right. I know what I want to ask them about. I'm not going to do put any extra work in it besides sitting down and talking into the microphone because I couldn't. And I learned a lot by doing that about being present. And, you know, in addition to learning a lot from people telling me about being present and Mm -hmm. so forth, you know, you can't, my my inclination is to want to control every piece of it. And when you really can't, there are things that you gain, but in the case of Letterman, you know, one of the big concerns was, you know, Letterman did some really awful stuff at work, Yeah, you know? And I wanted to ask him about that, but I also didn't only want to ask him about that. I think you did a great job addressing it. Thank you. And so I was, that's something that like, you can't just freestyle. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as I said, my, my family life and emotional life has been a real mess. So it was very hard to enjoy as it was happening. Um, also Dave couldn't figure out how to use his headphones. <laughs> I'm sure it was um, surreal at the same time. It was so surreal. Yeah. And, but he carried the weight of the interview. I mean, he's so eloquent. Like he definitely doesn't, he's definitely had to work at becoming reflective, mm-hmm. but he is reflective now. And, um, you know, he's a genius. He's a broadcasting genius. You know, like he talked in that interview about Regis Philbin and yeah. the kind of broadcasting genius that Regis is. But, and he said it to contrast with himself, but the truth is that he is that. Like if he wanted to go be Howard Stern, he could go be Howard Stern. If yeah, he course. wanted to go, if he wanted to host live with Regis and Kathy Lee, he could go host that. I know mm-hmm. that neither of those people host that show anymore. Right. <laughs> um, you know, like it, he is a, an actual broadcasting genius. Um, he can speak compellingly for five minutes or 20 minutes mm-hmm. or four hours. And he can be hilarious as well. You know, all the best Letterman bits are just bits where they set him up to be funny. Yeah. None of them are where they wrote him a great joke. Right. Yeah, of course. Like the writers were completely incidental on the show, except to the extent that like, you know, like why is Meryl Marco, the the original head writer of that show, like the greatest writer in the history of Letterman? It's because she thought of stupid pet tricks. Right. And it's like she <laughs> now she's a, she's a brilliant person. She understands the layers of irony embedded in stupid pet tricks and so forth. And yeah. she understood exactly why it was perfect for Dave. Right. But at the same time, it's basically a, an Ed Sullivan segment. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. not a joke. It's like a, it's a thing for David Letterman to do. And if it wasn't David Letterman, it wouldn't be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, so I just kind of set him up. It was great, man. I mean, he was engaged. Uh, I feel like you surprised him, uh, which is probably very hard to do. Uh, you made him laugh. You uh, it was just a really, really great conversation. 
And I, I just sat there smiling the whole time because not only is it like my friend is doing this great thing and I'm so happy for him, but uh, I'm also getting to hear the best interview I've ever heard with David Letterman. And <laughs> as a Letterman guy, I was just knocked out. Uh, I've listened to it twice now. And I felt like you you talked about things that he's never talked about before. And the way you addressed his workplace behavior was respectful and he didn't shy away from it and, and owned up to it. And it didn't feel like any sort of a gotcha kind of thing. It was just really, really great. And I just, if anyone is a fan of David Letterman and you haven't listened to it, just stop now and go listen to it. My, my friend, uh, Linda Holmes, who's a host of pop culture, happy hour mm-hmm. for NPR, as well as a talented novelist. And she's, she's one of the smartest people I know. And certainly about popular culture, one of the most insightful, she said something about David Letterman that made perfect sense to me that expressed something that I couldn't, that was ineffable to me previously, which was, you know, a lot of people say, well, why is Dave exempt from me too? And I, you know, there's basic reasons, you know, like being the boss at a lousy place to work where people are uncomfortable is different from harassing people actively. Mm -hmm. Both are bad to be clear, but there Mm -hmm. is a difference in degree. You know, he, the things he did with subordinates were consensual, even if there was an imbalance of power. Yeah. Um, you know, like he did bad things there. He didn't do the worst things he could have done. Right. Not to cop a plea for him, but there, there are some bits of degree, but you know, like all that stuff I said could be applied to like Garrison Keillor, you know, got fired and you know, like he didn't do the worst things of any of those people, but like he did bad things and got what he'd earned. Right. But what Linda said was Dave is the only one of those dudes who both seems genuinely contrite and under seems to understand that that doesn't fix it. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. And, you know, he, so like, in a like from my, to my mind, like he has not escaped me too. He just is self-aware that he did something bad mm-hmm. and he, that he, he will live with it and his public persona and his career will live with it for the rest of his career. It's just that because he at least has the self-awareness to do the things he can do mm-hmm. and try and be different. Um, and by all accounts, he has done that. Um, I mean, I believe him. I believe that he's sincere. Um, you know, he, yeah. he can live with it. He can, he can live with it. Like it's, it doesn't mean that you're erased. Um, if you are willing to live with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that seemed to be his attitude is not like, well, we're all good now. Right. It was like, I know that I have a stain on my record yeah. and it is not going to go away. Yeah. I love the bit when yeah. you were playing him as old, uh, the, the earliest clips. Teen Co. He doing a promo for something called Teen Co. <laughs> he seemed genuinely delighted and thrilled with that. I mean, wouldn't you be if you heard? I mean, sure. you'd be embarrassed too. But um, wh- one of the funny things about Letterman is there's these clips on the internet archive of him doing his college radio stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's really funny. Yeah. And it's really funny. Like, it's embarrassing, but it's good. (laughs) You're like, God, (laughs) he was already good. 
It's like when you find out Eddie Murphy, you realize Eddie Murphy was 19 when he was on Saturday Night Live and you're like, oh, ridiculous. I know. how is it possible he was good? <laughs> I know. <laughs> how is, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. He was. I'm it. still bad. <laughs> no. I'm going to be 40 soon and I'm bad. Well, uh, we're going to get into a thousand clowns, but if you don't uh, listen to Jesse's work, um, I definitely recommend Bullseye. Um, the turnaround is something that everyone should listen to. It was a, a short series, like you said, where you interviewed some of the famous interviewers about interviewing. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, if you want to hear Jerry Springer explain that he does not know the subject <laughs> yeah, of right. an episode of his show <laughs> until he reads it from the cue card on yeah, stage. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Really good stuff, though. But Terry Gross and Ira Glass and some of the legends. Uh, and then Jordan Jesse Go, which is uh, complete silliness and fun and it's still you and your buddy jordan having a good time and that it always warms my heart to know that you guys are still doing that me too it's been a great it's been a rock and a storm for me or that's a bad the rocks sink your boat it's been a (laughs) ship a harbor in a storm it's been a i've been very grateful to get to to talk to once a week to my friend jordan yeah and do that stupid show it's good stuff A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't 
feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, All right, so your movie pick uh, was not Babe 2, Pig in the City, another one of your favorites, but a movie called A Thousand Clowns from 1965, uh, directed by Fred Coe and uh, written... Uh, for Broadway and then adapted to the screen by Herb Gardner and starring uh, Jason Robards, Barbara Harris, Martin Balsam, and Barry Gordon. And this is a movie that I had only known by your references over the years. Uh, This is a movie that is very much under the radar, I think, and criminally underseen. And I loved it. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. It was great. I, I got the DVD because it's basically not streaming. Didn't you say it's on YouTube? It was like, so for years and years, it was on VHS briefly. For years and years, the only way you could see it was on, uh, I think TCM has the rights to it. Um, Okay. And so it would air on, I I think it was, it might have been AMC, uh, like once a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you could buy bootleg VHS tapes of it. (laughs) Right. And um, yeah, it was just re-released on uh, DVD and Blu-ray. and uh that's the first time it's been on dvd um and yeah it's if somebody has a put up a high quality version of it on youtube if people just want to watch it streaming for free um uh illegally but i don't think almost everyone involved is dead so it's fine (laughs) Um, uh, i usually don't do a recap of the movie but uh since this is one that many people probably haven't seen it's a story of uh it's in black and white even though it's from 1965 and uh, gorgeous black and white. And it's about a, uh, a, a laid off comedy writer who has sort of sold his soul to write for this very bad comedy show. Um, I, well, I don't know if he's laid off or he quits, but he's not working. And he has an, a 12 year old sort of precocious 12 year old uh, nephew living with him. That was his sister's child that she just basically left there. And the whole movie revolves around a handful of days where Child Protective Services has entered his life to make a decision on whether or not he should be allowed to uh, be the caretaker for this kid. Uh, and that's kind of the movie. It's a very simple premise. And um, Jason Robards is so, everyone in it is great. Um, but Jason Robards is so phenomenal. I know he played the part on Broadway. Uh, how did you come ab- about this movie? Where did you hear about it? Well, my parents divorced when I was three. Mm-hmm. My mom says four, but my dad said three. So this is a kind of lack of shared reality right. that the two of them had. <laughs> and they used to, they used to laugh that there's three things that they agreed on, uh-huh. which were me. That's sweet. They both loved me. Yeah. James Brown. Nice. And a thousand clowns. <laughs> That's great. And my dad, um, I mentioned my dad was a veterans peace activist. When my dad was in the Navy, um, this movie was in theaters Mm -hmm. and he was served on an aircraft carrier and he had 
two main jobs. Uh, one was loading bombs, um, which was one of the most dangerous jobs on the carrier. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you dropped the bomb, you died. Mm -hmm. Um, and one was running the projection booth. And so, you know, my dad had very severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, one of the reasons was that in the production booth, they would run the tail movies from the planes. So he would load the bombs and then the next day he would watch the movie of them killing people. Jeez. Um, but when they weren't airing tail movies for the pilots, they were airing movie movies for the people who, the many, many sailors who are required to run a, you know, to run a aircraft carrier. Yeah. So they only had a couple of movies on board and I don't know what the other movies were, but one of them was a thousand clowns. So my dad had seen a thousand clowns like 150 times. Oh, wow. And it was his favorite movie. And I always thought based on the name that it sounded boring. <laughs> like I didn't know anything about it, so I wasn't sure what to think. Yeah. And, um, you know, the name made it, makes it sound like it's a, you know, uh, like a melodrama, you know? Yeah. Um, and I didn't see it until I was a teenager. It was also very hard to see for the yeah. reasons I explained, but, um, there was a video store by my house that had, that had bootleg tapes and they had, I, that's the first time I got to see, um, you know, they had tapes of Larry Sanders and they had tapes of, um, Brass Eye and the day to day, mm -hmm. um, is perfect British comedy shows. Um, you know, things that you couldn't get Mr. Show before it was on DVD. Um, and they had a thousand clowns and, uh, I watched it and it is a favorite of many comedy people. Um, and I've, I've bonded with many comedy people over it because it is a beautiful expression of what it is to be an artist in a form that is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't claim to be important because you're do comedy. Right. Right. And it is not to do comedy is to commit yourself to not being a responsible per person. Yeah. And it's about this self-centered man and his genuine love for his child, you know, his nephew, who's mm -hmm. his, his child and his genuine wish to live his own life and his dawning understanding that he struggles with so deeply that he has to be selfless to care for his child. And that is something that I think any parent has faced, you yeah. know, that like when you have children, and this is true when you have a relationship and the movies are also about that, you know, a romantic relationship, but especially when you have children that you, when you are responsible to others and, you know, my dad was somebody who, he, as I said, he had very severe PTSD. He was an alcoholic. Um, and he got, and he was twice divorced by the time I was four. And, um, but he loved me 
and he was not a perfect dad in any way, but one of the things is that I could see that he was fighting to care for me and my brothers when my brothers came along. And, um, you know, he, I used to go to AA meetings with him when I was really little, you know, mm-hmm. um, and he, he fought his whole life to make the world a better place because of the ways that he had contributed to unjust killing. And, um, you know, he fought for peace and fought for the rights of people who needed, who needed help fighting for themselves and fought to help people fight for themselves. And, um, you know, he never made it to being a whole person in some ways, you know, but, um, uh, but that is kind of the struggle of this film, right? Yeah. And it's actually based on the life of, uh, Gene Shepard. Yeah. I saw that afterward. Who is famous, most famous probably for a, a Christmas story. Yeah. The voice but was a, yeah, but was like a legendary, um, radio host and monologist. Mm-hmm. And the play was written by a friend of his about him. He saw it, realized it was about him and stopped being friends with the playwright forever. Really? Yeah. That's interesting because I feel like the character of Murray, I mean, you describe him as self-centered and he is that, but it's not a, a skewering of an individual. I mean, he's a very lovable, um, engaging and lovable and affable person. Uh, he's just wants to live by his own rules and doesn't want to go have to work for the man. And, but he's, he's silly and sweet. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm I mean, he's, sorry that's, to hear that. that is, I mean, you're right. Like the, the essential conflict of the film, right. And it's, it's kind of a dramatic irony. It's something that you as the audience can see but he can't see is you see that he is the most charming person you could ever meet. And Mm -hmm. it's not false. Yeah. You know, it's not that he's a con man. That's usually the irony of a charming person in a dramatic story, right? Yeah. They're like fake. They're fake. Yeah. He's real. He's for real. He is genuinely an amazing genius. Yeah. And when, you know, when chuckles the clown, (laughs) The chipmunk clown, who is his former employee employer, comes and begs him to come work for him again. It's because he is a genius and Chuckles knows that he's not a genius, that he's a fake artist. And this other, this guy is a real artist. That scene is amazing. It's as good as it gets. Um, And so like he is charming. Like when, when... (laughs) You know, when he throws open his window and leans out and says, rich people, I've been looking at your garbage cans and I want to see a better class of trash. Yeah. Or he says, everybody out on the street for volleyball. Yeah. I mean, that's how the movie opens and closes as he goes out to these almost surreally empty New York streets in the mornings and yells up at people to do these crazy things, which delights his nephew. Um but it it does have these weird, surreal, like it, it almost feels like a French New Wave film at times. It's unlike any movie I've seen before. Because well, we can talk, we can talk about the structure because there's things about that that I think are really interesting. Right? Yeah, because it was a it. play. It was a play. But let me finish saying about Jason Robards' character. Yeah. And Jason Robards, of course, was a very troubled man, mm-hmm. um, an alcoholic himself, um, 
And, you know, as you've seen at any Jason Robart, you know, parenthood. Yeah. He's perfect. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, yeah. Uh, Magnolia. Parenthood, one of the most pretty good movies of all time. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Jason Robarts is spectacularly perfect. Um, uh, Quick Change is one of my favorite Jason Robarts roles. Yeah. Um, uh, and a deeply underrated film. But like, um, but like Jason Robarts is so charming, so brilliant, so obviously a great artist. He so obviously loves his son. Mm-hmm. And I call him, he's his nephew, but it's his, his son. And like all of those things are true, right? Yeah. So what makes it such a moving film is how clear it is that he may not have it inside of him. Yeah. To take care of other people. Yeah. Even when he wants to, when he meets someone that he loves, that he falls in love with, whose raison d'etre is to take care of people. Mm -hmm. You know, he falls in love with one of the CPS workers and she, you know, she's a, she's a social, she, you know, she's a social worker. She's dedicated her life to taking care of children. Right. Yeah. And she wants to take care of him and he might not even be able to hold up his end of that. Yeah. And so... It is, you know, what it is, is it's not a dissection of him being ill-willed. It's his incapability. Yeah. He does not have it to care for others. Not because he's a bad person, because he, all the things that make him so great are also reasons why he is fundamentally broken as a human being. And I think that that's why it's so meaningful to comedy people is like, you know, it's the sad clown stuff can be well oversold. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But to become an artist, it's a, you know, you have to have a really good reason emotionally. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise it's not worth it. You know what I mean? Otherwise you'll just quit. Um, Because there's easier ways to make a living. You just go into advertising, right? Right. But (laughs) like, um, but, but it is that, it, it is that, th- like, if he was just a jerk, uh-huh. it's not, a, it's not anything. The movie's yeah. not anything. The, it, the lesson isn't that he's a bad person. It's that he's a broken person, that he's missing something, despite being a wonderful person. Yeah. And it's a movie where, um, and, you know, we, we can jump all around, but it's a movie where when it ends, he has made the decision to do the responsible thing and take on a job so he can keep his nephew son. Uh, and it ends in a hopeful way, but certainly not a Hollywood hopeful because the first, as a viewer, you're thinking, well, how long is this going to last? Yeah. And it's not, it's entirely unclear that he has really done it. Yeah. Like it's not emotionally. I mean, I, I'll tell you, every time I watch this movie, I cry. Yeah. And the reason I cry is not because it's such a beautiful redemption. It's because I can see that it may be that he never changes. I cried during uh, the scene where uh, one of the sort of running themes is that Nick has been using different names. And he says, by the time you're, I think, 13, you have to come up with your name. And Nick ends up there's, naming himself. My, there's a part where there's a part where he just uh, picks any name and then puts Captain before right. it to spruce <laughs> it up a little. Also, one of the names when he's going through all the names he had was the 
and I knew I knew the name. It was a doctor, and it was a guy who like wrote the uh, Journal of American Medicine for like twenty five years or something. <laughs> but uh, he names himself after Murray and makes a library card. Uh, and Jason Robards and, and Murray is a little confused at first, and then gets it. And man, I just there's something about that scene that just the, the fucking tears just started flowing out of my face this morning. I mean, the, there is this. Um... So the, his relation, his kid, the kid is a child man and he's a man child. Yeah. And having been a child man myself, like having had in some ways neglectful parents, but being incredibly precocious in some ways mm-hmm. and having, you know, like a lot of incredibly precocious kids having other like major developmental deficits. Um, I relate to both characters, right? I relate yeah. to this kid. There's a part, you know, we talked about my fancy middle school and there's a part that I literally, I literally wrote down the line cause I didn't want to uh, forget it. Right. So there's a part where there's a part where, where Murray says to Nick, the kid, he says, would you concentrate on being a child? Because I find your imitation of an adult hopelessly inadequate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's Max there's Fisher this, stuff, but there's this part. Uh, and I, I guess I, I didn't, I didn't write it down here, but um, there's a part where um, there's, there's, there's a part where he describes going to his fancy school where Nick describes going to his fancy school. And he Mm -hmm. says, because, because I go to this, because of this school for big brains, these people watch and they take notes (laughs) and, uh, I can't, gosh, I, I wish I, I don't want to give the, I don't want to half give it. So, um, but he has this incredible insight, which is that he is, he understands that his dad figure here is going to lose him. Yeah. To, to CPS. The, you know, Murray has to get a job or else he'll lose the kid basically is the story. Yeah. And Murray won't get a job because, he can't do it emotionally. He can't sell out. And Nick sees it. He sees this happening. You know, he, and and he comes in and he tries to fix it by being an adult, but he can't, he's Mm. a bad at being an adult. He's a kid. So every time he comes in, he does something that's like the right thing to do, but wrong. Yeah. You know, when he comes in, he says he has an ex-opti as an exec assist, uh-huh. <laughs> meaning <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> excellent opportunity as an executive assistant because he's been reading the want ads. Right. Or he, you know, he, they ask him to bring in his favorite toy and yeah. he brings in, uh, he brings in a nudie lamp where the boobs blink. <laughs> that scene was so great. And, and they ask, and the, you know, the social worker asks if it reminds him of his mother and he explains, no, my mother's boobs don't blink. <laughs> yeah. And she keeps digging and digging. That also has yeah. one of my favorite lines too. And he's, he has that very sweet line about how his mother's laugh is what he remembers most and was most special. It's a very sweet moment. And then he goes, of course she overdoes that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Cause his mom is an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, but you know, he also like you know, Murray sends him away to the neighbor's house in the middle of this story so he can fuck the social worker. Yeah. Well, the kid kind of goes on his own. Because he knows that's how it works, right? Because he's been forced to take that responsibility for himself. Yeah, that's the Which is the part that I reckon, you know, as a guy who took the city bus to school by myself as a second grader, (laughs) right? Um, And so it's this hopeless, it's this hopeless and very tragic, deeply tragic tension um, because the kid can't be an adult. 
no matter what he, no matter how smart he is Mm -hmm. and no matter how liberated he is because he's with this amazing dad figure. Yeah. He can't just become an adult. He has to grow over time. And the man is missing this piece of adulthood that he can't generate within himself, no matter what the stakes are. And it's clear, like he, it's not that he doesn't love the kid. It's not that he doesn't love the woman. He's just, maybe has a hole there. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, uh, I mean, it's a very sophisticated take on that kind of character because it's a character we've seen before. Um, And, you know, when I was watching this, I mentioned Max Fisher a second ago, like there's so much of the DNA of this movie in Rushmore. Uh, he even kind of looks like Max Fisher. And I, I know that's no accident. I tried to find online if Wes Anderson has ever mentioned this movie. But um, in a little bit of Royal Tannenbaum's kind of Royals relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's clearly influenced by it. But um, and also a little tidbit, Willem Dafoe apparently played Nick on stage when he was 13. I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, <laughs> it's been interesting. Barry Gordon and Jason Robarts were both in the Broadway production, which won uh, many awards. And speaking of the aesthetics of the film, right? Like, so this is a play. Yeah. And it, it feels like a play. It's people talking to each other. Yes. That's all that happens in the uh-huh. movie, right? So the director of this movie is named Fred Coe, and he was basically a theater producer. Like, he's not a, really a movie director, right? Yeah, he only did a few, I think. So he shot the whole movie, brought it to editing, and the editor basically said, yeah, this is not a movie. (laughs) And to his credit, I think Fred Coe was a great producer, Mm -hmm. even if he wasn't fluent in the language of film. He was a great producer. And one of the things that he did, and this is according to the the editor of this film, wrote in one of the best books about film editing, maybe the best book about film editing. And there's a chapter about a thousand clowns. Oh, cool. And basically they got, uh, they got the movie, they got the studio to give them money to reshoot. And what they did is they took these scenes that had been static and they made them into, uh, non-literal montages. So these dialogue scenes happen over multiple places. Yeah. As they travel through New York City. And then they built these montages uh, around the themes of people, you know, the man in the gray gray flannel suit sort of deal. Right. Because this is still the pre-hippie 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, it's people going to work and they built these montages of like marching music. Yeah. With people going to work. Yeah, and then they built they built these dialogue scenes that take place in many venues, but are one string of dialogue. You yeah, know, very non literal. For for it being a play, you're like this is, and for it being 1965 and a studio film, it's spectacularly, um, you know, uh, experimental. Yeah, to do this right, like in 1965, it's like this must have felt like. Uh, to to a, just a regular person going to a regular movie theater, it, it's like the you know the narrative equivalent of the the train coming out of the movie screen. You know, you oh totally like it feels like French New Wave a lot of times. You know, t- yeah, ten years later, uh, especially with the black and white. But it 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 is, has a very unusual um, 
edit to it. Uh, yeah. But it works, and these and this sound that comes blasting in at times and then goes away, and that that weird montage of people eating uh, yeah. and drinking to the Hallelujah chorus. It's a really weird movie. Yeah, and what and every actor in it is perfect. Yeah, um, Mr. Feeney is perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, from I think Boy he Meets won an Oscar, World. right? Uh, no, the, uh, uh, oh, Martin Balsam uh, did. Mar- Martin Balsam won an Oscar, who's a totally brilliant, amazing actor. Um, but like each one of these characters, one of the interesting things is, so the guy who played, the guy who played his old boss, um, Chuckles the Chipmunk. Yeah. Gene Sachs. Gene Sachs was not available when they shot the film initially. So they reshot that scene when he became available for the reshoots. And that is a scene that could just be funny, right? This pathetic... Oh, man. He's a wreck. This pathetic children's <laughs> television host yeah, dressed so as a chipmunk, <laughs> trying to get the kid to like him, right? Yeah. But the kid doesn't care. <laughs> and he's just being polite, right? Right. But... And it is really funny. But you also see that, like... You know, the film is about these the pain of being an artist, right? Mm. And for him... The pain is that he's a success, but he knows that he's a hack. Yeah. Like he knows that, right? And, and knows he knows, it. and, and he knows that the, and he knows that Murray is a real genius. Yeah. But he also knows that Murray is too good for him, yeah. but he's mad because he's, he, he has the adultness to see the situation. Right. He, even though he's pathetic, yeah. even though he is truly pathetic, he is a sad man with giant who goes to a friend's house wearing chipmunk ears. Yeah. With a poster of a cutout of himself. With a cutout of himself <laughs> and a bag of his self-branded potato chips. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because he really is like, you know, he's like a, a more sad Krusty the Clown. Yeah. He he also sees this situation that this real genius is in and sees why it's sad because he knows that he's taking care of himself. He's being an adult. He has a job, even though he's, he will never be the artist that Murray is. He at least knows that he is doing something that takes care of his family or whatever. Right. And he's doing something to service his, the hole in his heart, you know, he needs to be a performer too, even though he, he'll never be a great one. Yeah. And it's, there's something about watching that scene. It's such a, this is one of those movies where every scene and there are these really long scenes because it was a play where every scene came along. And I think, man, that was my favorite scene in the movie. And it's just built of my favorite scenes. And that scene is so great because he is a wreck. He's so insecure. He knows he's not really funny. The kid knows he's not funny. He knows the kid knows he's not funny, which is the biggest uh, like dagger in the heart of them all. And uh, there's that really funny bit at the end where where uh, Nick says, uh, you know, we, we do this routine. We do this bit where I do Alexander Hamilton and uh, and Murray does Jefferson and they start to go into it. And he's like, you can't do an imitation of Alexander Hamilton. No one knows what he sounds like. And Robards goes, that's the funny part. You missed the funny part, Leo. And then he just goes, I'm getting a terrible rash on the back of my neck. <laughs> it's like the writing is so fucking sharp in this movie. It's unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's really beautiful. I mean, every character that revolves around Murray, you know, his brother, played by Martin Balsam, is his agent. Yeah. That and scene is great. In there's, the an incre- there's a scene that he won, there's a scene that he basically won an Oscar for, which yeah. is, it, it's it, it's him and Murray in an abandoned Chinese restaurant underneath Murray's house. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it, it would be one thing if it was just him telling Murray to get his act together, right? Yeah. But it's the depth of understanding that both he has and we as an all-knowing audience have of, you know, Martin Balsam's character, the brother, like, he knows that he's made his choices, right? Mm-hmm. And he is living with his choices. He's decided that he's an agent He's decided that he just loves fruit and he loves to bring fruit to his friends on his way to work, right? And it's not that he is right or like knows that's what everyone in the world should be. Mm -hmm. It's that he has, he has the emotional capacity to live with his choices. Yeah. That he has expanded his heart to the point where he understands that he can do what he does. And that is the thing that like, as an almost 40 year old, I still struggle as a, you know, I was my, my mom's only child and my dad's only child until I was eight. And, you know, I was a weird genius in elementary school who went to the library instead of hanging out, you know, like the all I, I am a, I was very independent slash neglected. <laughs> you uh-huh. know what I mean? Yeah. And like, for me, I always want to just take care of myself and, you know, just, I'll go take care of myself. Yeah. You know, I have this awful disability that is invisible to people and like, I can't ever explain to people what its impact on my life is. Really the only thing that can, is I just go take care of myself. Right. Right. But I have three kids that I love and I have a wife that I love. Yeah. And so... And I'm theoretically, I'm an artist too, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I want to, obviously I'm doing the lowest form of art that exists on earth, which is B- bullshit into a microphone, <laughs> but like, but uh, I struggle with reconciling, you know, to become an adult is to reconcile with disappointment, right? To understand that every choice you make means you're leaving choices behind mm-hmm. that you won't get back. Right. And resolving yourself to the choices that you have made, Mm -hmm. even though there is no perfect choice. Right. Murray can't get a job. His choices are not between working for Chuckles the Chipmunk and working on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour or whatever the art of 1965 is. That's the art of 1970. But you know, like your show of shows or something, Mm -hmm. you know, his choices are between uh, working on the Chuckles the Chipmunk show, keeping his child, having romantic love. Mm -hmm. And what? Doing a funny bit when he calls the, you know, 555 weather. Right. He calls the weather recording and scolds it for always repeating itself. Yeah. Like it's his choice isn't between making perfect art and getting a job selling out. Yeah. His choice is between losing everything and getting a job selling out. 
Yeah, like one of the really tough parts of this movie is, you, you know, you really believe this love that they have uh, with he has with the uh, child services worker played uh, by Barbara Harris, who is just so endearing and so adorable in this movie and such a great performance. Um, but you really buy into this kind of whirlwind romance. And as an audience member, like you have hope that he uh, that she can just sort of do that thing where she shapes up this man who needs help. And the very next day, you know, when she asked for the key to the apartment and you can already see that look on his face and it's just such a sinking feeling as a viewer, like, no man, like she's, she's great. This, this is your shot. You need to like, she's throwing you a lifeline here. Yeah. I, I feel that way completely. And I also, you know, watching the movie this week, um, I have uh, trying to think of how to say this, but I have had experience with child protective services, mm-hmm. and um, you know, one, I think one of the fundamental things about being in that line of work is that it doesn't matter how much love you have, yeah, you can't fix everything. You can't, and she is hoping that by being there she can transform things. Mm -hmm. And that isn't how it works. She admittedly cares too much. And in that great scene, she breaks down and, and talks about that and sort of admits that she crosses the line in her job. She hates this one kid. She loves these other kids. Uh, and the the way this movie goes back and forth between these moments of incredible pain and really some of the best silly wordplay and comedy, uh, it's so deft. And even, you know, even Mr. Feeney, what's Mr. Feeney's real name? Now, is Feeney... <laughs> Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World plays yeah, her yeah, former Daniels. boyfriend, William Daniels, who's her partner, uh-huh. <laughs> um, who's her partner too. in the CPS. Like, you know, he's a stiff you know, and he's uh, he's the opposite of Murray, right? He's he's yeah. humorless, but like he's there because he really cares. And the film is not about making fun of him for caring, right, or for being a stiff. Mm-hmm. Like it's funny that he's a stiff, but like he's the one who is doing the work. He's the one yeah. who's showing up in the ways that Murray can't. And has to do the 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 worst part of the job, which is to potentially take Nick away, yeah. uh, because she wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's a there's it is not. Um, you know, we were talking about Letterman. In a lot of ways, it's a film about learning to live with insufficiency and pain right like Mm -hmm. it's about it's about accepting the imperfection of your choices the imperfection of your life and trying to give trying to take that opportunity to give to others when you have the choice right yeah to care for others right The, the to that ultimately that is what you have control over is making an effort to care for other people Mm -hmm. um, in your world. 
And it's also super funny. Like, I want to be clear, this movie is super funny. <laughs> well, it is. Like, there will be like a painful moment. And then a line like, you know, I've been attacked by the Ladies Home Journal when she redoes his apartment. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, or William Daniels has that great line where he's, and this kind of sums up as Murray's character too, where he says, you are not a person, you are an experience. Yeah. Uh, the writing is just so sharp. And I feel like movie, you don't see movies like this really ever, but especially these days that balance the the pain and the comedy so well, it seems like it has to be one or the other. Yeah. And I, this is like, you know, this is the genre of film that I most would like to see. It's a genre of television show I most would like to see. And it's the one that is the least well represented. I mean, totally, I mentioned man. Mike Lee. There, there's a lot of Mike Lee movies that are really funny mm-hmm. that are moving in this way and yeah, humane yeah. in this way. You know, this is has a little bit of staginess to it that Mike Lee movies resist. Um, That's the play like coming through, I think. Happy Go Lucky or something, you know, is a is a similar movie that's I find very moving and very funny. But yeah. Um, but you know, like I remind what it reminds me and one fan of this movie I've talked to is Judd Apatow. Um, like it reminds me of what Judd Apatow always says he learned from working on Larry Sanders with Gary Shandling. You know, Larry Sanders is, as far as I'm concerned, the best comedy show. Um, you know, the Simpsons is as great in a different way, but Larry Sanders is the best comedy show. And he always said this, the, the show has to be moved by, by the fundamental feelings of the characters, the truth of the characters that has to be the engine that moves the show. It can't be circumstances falling on them. And they like most sitcoms are circumstances. Yeah. There's a set of static characteristics (laughs) that each character has, you know, whatever cliff is a know-it-all and uh, norm is lazy or whatever. Right. Um, And like, and, and then some outside circumstance happens, disturbs that order, and then it becomes reordered mm-hmm. over the course of the 20 minutes, right? On Larry Sanders, every conflict is about the fundamental emotional qualities of the characters. You know, it's about um, uh, it, it's about Hank's neediness. You know, Hank is a very, very a thousand clowns. Hank on Larry Sanders is a very, very thousand clowns character. Yeah, totally. It's a, a, a Gary Shandling's, Gary Shandling's fear and loneliness, you know, all these, all, all these deep emotional things that come into conflict that drive the show. And there's not a lot of comedy like that. Like it's cause it's hard. Mm-hmm. I think Judd Apatow aspires to it and, yep. you know, different people have different feelings about how successful he is at it. I, I love his movies. I, I, I have no complaints. Um, uh, including the, you know, this is 40. I, I loved, so I've, I'm not complaining about it. Right. Like Wes Anderson approaches similar issues in, in this way. He's very funny and yeah. certainly, you know, he has his own mannered manner. Um, you know, and people, you know, Whit Stillman or something, you sure. know, speaking of mannered manners. Right. <laughs> um, but like there is a, um, it is something that people don't try for very often. It's one of the things I admire about Judd is that he, he, you know, as much as you can c- complain about the, like, everything feels like it's improvised, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like ultimately he did all, he does always ask the writers and directors of, on the films that he produces to, to try to have real emotions driving the film. Yeah. Right. Driving the story. 
you know, that's what's so great about Superbad. You mm-hmm. know, there's things that aren't great about Superbad, but I'd say it's pretty great in general. And like, what's great about it is it really is about, it's not just a tacked on story to a bunch of jokes, right. which can be fun, you know, like, I don't know, Tommy Boy's funny or whatever. Right. <laughs> Tommy Boy has some emotional depth, but mostly not. Um, you know, it has a one line, one line's worth of emotional depth. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, but not one line in the film, but you could describe the emotional depth in, in about one sentence. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, they're true to it, but you know, um, but like that is not something that much aspires to. And even the golden age of television, there's so little that aspires to that, you know, like maybe on a systemic level, the Armando Iannucci shows, you know, Veep and the thick of it. Like they're yeah. the, some I mean, of the I feel closest. Like there's certainly more TV shows that are doing things and maybe I just consider it like uh, funny shows with a lot of heart, whether it's Better Things or Master of None or uh, One Mississippi. Like, I feel like there are TV shows that are doing that much better than any movies have been. Yeah. I don't, f- I, I, um, I liked One Mississippi a lot. Um, and there's, there's a lot of good in the, in Better Things and Master of None friend of mine said that his friend called master of none master's thesis of one. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people just saying to each other, the themes in master of none that I'm not nuts about. Um, just like saying them out loud as though yeah, I guess that you. makes your show deep. Uh, like, did you know, oh, man, I guess our immigrant forefathers really struggled to make it in America right. in a way that we don't have to. <laughs> Isn't that right? My nose. friend that I say this to, <laughs> I loved it though. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything that is as successful as Larry Sanders or a thousand clowns. Um, uh, you know, there's things that are, have headed that direction. It's surprising how few have tried from what I understand. Maybe I've not seen breaking bad or the Bob Odenkirk breaking bad, but, uh, I've heard those are very funny. I mean, I think mad men, um, I also haven't seen The Sopranos. <laughs> I hear <laughs> The Sopranos is really funny. Um, I think Mad Men, which I have seen, um, has that sometimes yeah. to the extent that it's funny, which it, it can be very funny. Um, it's often because of real feelings. Yeah. And I mean, I want to be clear. My other favorite TV show of all time is probably Police Squad. Right. Like I loved, <laughs> I love jokes for joke's sake too. Well, yeah, I'm I mean, not putting those down. You're the guy that does uh, Bullseye and who does Jordan Jesse Go. I mean, yeah, I can I, see how this movie like yeah, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know the movie ends in such a sweet way. Like I said earlier, but it's not overly sentimental. It feels earned but temporary. And again, it's not. It doesn't wrap it up in a way that you're like, well, he fixed himself inside two hours. Uh, and then, you know, that just, even that last shot of him literally running sort of toward his future, I think is, uh, symbolic of what he's trying to do. He's not, he's not even walking. Everyone starts running and that's another kind of weird sort of surreal French new wavy kind of thing. And this movie is peppered with so much of that stuff that, uh, again, it's just not, it's not like any other movie I've ever seen before. And he, you know, he might just as well be running away from his future. Well, yeah. Running away from his responsibilities. It's it's true. It's ambivalent, I would say. To me, it, stri- it strikes me as ambivalent. 
I love the bit where he keeps, he's always uh, left the room when people turn around, he's not there. And his brother in that great scene, he even kind of references it in sort of a a meta way. He's like, for for once, I want to be the first person to leave the room. (laughs) And I mean, that's like, I mean, that's another thing that I, I relate to very deeply. Like there is a part of me that wants to get out of there. I know, man. No matter where I am. I know you. And <laughs> you're always looking um, for the exit, buddy. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you have to, it, it's him having to make himself be responsible for himself. Yeah. With regard to others. Like he knows that he can be responsible for himself within himself. Yeah. But when you have a child or you have a love romantic love yeah. you can't do you can't just be responsible for yourself within yourself you're responsible for that system yeah i mean that's something i certainly identify with too as a, a fairly selfish human being uh well listen man i've uh taken too much of your time this is a movie i can't recommend highly enough uh before we finish though i just want to say thanks to you uh Aww. you have been a very overly generous and kind person to me for the past uh, probably almost 10 years now and uh, inviting me to Max FunCon every year has been a big part of my life and I've made um, professional connections there and contacts there that have been important and long-term friends that mean a lot to me and uh, I just have always thought a lot of what you do and of you as a person and I, I appreciate you as a as a human being. Thank you. I don't know if you noticed, but I literally, I couldn't even, not only could I not look into the webcam, I couldn't look at the picture of you on my Zoom here <laughs> while you were saying that. And I'm very grateful. Thank you for bringing me that barbecue hat. When yeah, we man. Did that show best. in Atlanta. I love that barbecue hat. Tell uh, Teresa I said hi and squeeze those kids for me. I will. All right. See you, bud. All righty, everyone. That was great. I had so much fun talking to Jesse and uh, really getting into some heady stuff. Uh, he's he's one of the best. Uh, certainly, I think, uh, like I said in the show, the best interviewer of his generation and also turns out one of the best interview guests. Um, this is this is one of my favorite episodes. So I hope you guys liked it. I hope you see a thousand clowns. I hope you support everything Jesse does. Listen to Bullseye. Listen to that Letterman interview. Check out Jordan Jesse Go if you just want pure silliness. And support the Maximum Fun uh, Network. Got a bunch of great shows. Uh, Judge John Hodgman, um, one of my longtime favorites. Stop podcasting yourself. Of course, the McElroy brothers and every great thing that they do uh, for that network. Um, he's a good curator of great shows. And I'm a longtime donor and supporter of Maximum Fun, and you should be too. Uh, So I hope you guys liked it. I certainly enjoyed myself, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown, edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson, and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time 
every time or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.